Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making The Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years War Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon The Crimean War to When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War, the July Crisis Anniversary Project, the Swedish Deluge, Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Seven Years' War, which originally aired as one episode on the 19th of June, 2012. Welcome to the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Seven Years' War. Last time we ended the episode with Frederick's worst defeat. After years first of dramatically holding his enemies at bay, only to succumb to their combined numbers. The Seven Years' War was far from an easy experience for Frederick, but if he was going to survive, he'd have to use every bit of cunning and guile at his disposal, not to mention hope that luck would be on his side. I hope you've been enjoying this remastered look at Frederick's tale, folks. It is arguably his most impressive feat, and it certainly demonstrates the sponge-like qualities of Prussia that it's able to just absorb all the stuff that the Allies throw at it. Anyway... Let's see how he fared, as I now take you to August, 1759. Diplomacy without military might is like music without instruments. Frederick the Great After the Battle of Kunersdorf on the 12th of August, 1759, the Austrians and Russians did not press the advance into Prussia's interior, 
even though they very easily could have. The Austrians were sending another army from the south to attack Prussia, in addition to the leftovers of the Battle of Kunersdorf, and this meant that the Austro-Russian force aimed at Prussia now totaled 90,000 men. To face this threat, Frederick could by now field just 30,000 men. Saying that though, numbers didn't tell the whole story. The Austrians and Russians also suffered, since they lost, collectively, 20,000 men at Kunersdorf, and both were concerned that their lines of communication, particularly in the Russian case, were being stretched to the limit by marching so far west. Also, one of Frederick's allies, Prince Henry of Saxony, was not involved in Kunersdorf, and he still posed a threat to the Austrians and Russians. So the Austro-Russian army pulled back and reinforced key border towns for the remainder of 1759, which meant that they didn't mount another offensive during that year. Frederick was, of course, delighted at this, so delighted, in fact, that he coined the phrase the miracle of the House of Brandenburg in order to describe it. Prussia was safe for the moment. Just like Rome after Cannae, the following campaigns were not the most glamorous for Frederick. He continued his losing trend in the Battle of Maxen on the 20th of November that year in a failed attack over a river. But Frederick was invigorated by the perceived miracle and began planning to resist for the following year. 1760 was still no better for Prussia, but somehow it limped on. In June 1760, a much smaller Prussian army lost to the Battle of Landshut to an Austrian army twice its size. Prussia lost territory to France in Marburg, in the Prussian-protected province of Hesse-Kassel, it lost part of Prussian Pomerania to the Swedes, and to top it all off it lost the city of Glatz in Lower Silesia when the Austrians capitalised on their victory at Landshut. Things were not going well at all for Frederick. Then the tide began to turn for him. On the 15th of August 1760, he did battle with the Austrian general, Ernst von Leuden, at Liegnitz. The Battle of Liegnitz was a critically important one for Frederick because he was outnumbered 3 to 1, yet still, by using the woods to his advantage and capitalising on an explosion in the Austrian powder supply, he was able to force the Austrians into a retreat. Prussia was not out yet, it seemed. And there was other good news coming from the West, as the Anglo-Hanoverian armies had come through yet again, this time defeating the French in the Battle of Warburg on the 31st of July, which prevented France from sending aid to Austria. Now Frederick received more good news. The Austrians were marching towards him with a large army, and Frederick rushed out to do battle. At last, with a decent chance of success, the result was the Battle of Torgau, a hard-fought, bloody affair which saw Frederick lead 50,000 Prussians against 63,000 Austrian and German allies. Both sides made mistakes. The most notable made by Frederick was when he sent his grenadiers out too early and lost 5,000 men in the space of 30 minutes. The Austrians should have capitalised on the resulting low morale in the Prussian camp, but instead they moved to intercept an attempted flanking manoeuvre by one of Frederick's subordinates. This distraction enabled Frederick to focus his entire left flank on the Austrian's right, since the Austrian right flank was moving to attack the Prussian flanking manoeuvre, which had been spotted, if that makes sense. But Frederick had wanted it to be spotted, and as his left flank caught up with the Austrian right, the Austrians realised what had happened and tried to turn around. What happened was an intense infantry and artillery battle, as both sides viciously turned their cannons on the other. 
Frederick's flanking manoeuvre now stopped moving, however, and it gradually became clear that Frederick had completely outmaneuvered his foe. The obvious flanking manoeuvre Frederick had sent actually possessed a majority of horse-drawn cannons, a novel weapon for that time. Once they spun around and brought their fire to bear on the Austrian right flank, it became far too much for the Austrians, as the Prussian left flank continued to pour their fire on too. Both sides fired volleys and the Austrians tried to do their best, but in the confusion, neither infantry were able to really do much at all, with cannonballs flying everywhere. The Prussians were held back by Frederick from attacking too aggressively, in case he needed them to attack later on, and the Austrians' best men stood in reserve as a counter-attack with their centre, which would be vital should their right flank be wiped out. The combined fire of the two Prussian groups, who concentrated their artillery fire on the Austrian right flank, caused the Austrians to break, panic, and flee. While they fled, Frederick ordered all his artillery to fire on the Austrian centre. Once the Austrian commander realised what was going on, he organised an organised retreat. Through this measure, Austria lived to fight another day. It hadn't been the decisive victory that Frederick wanted, but through a bit of tactical know-how and a bit of trickery and skill, he'd achieved a vital victory and shown that he hadn't lost too much of a step. The battle had been bloody, but Frederick had turned the direction of war around, at least a bit, and, at the very least, he was still great. But the war's direction had not swung in Frederick's favour. Almost immediately he was confronted with the fact that Prussia's enemies were still just as determined to destroy her, and one single battle, no matter how bloody or decisive against the Austrians, would not dissuade the other enemies of Prussia from attacking a state which they believed was on the brink of collapse. Prussia did seem to be nearing its end, but the war continued. Just before the Battle of Torgau in October 1760, Berlin had been briefly occupied by an Austro-Russian army, but was soon abandoned once winter set in. Losing his capital to the enemy may sound like the end, but Frederick refused to acknowledge defeat to his enemies. And besides, the enemies of Prussia were not satisfied with capturing Berlin, since they wanted to destroy Prussia completely. Frederick knew once his capital had been abandoned, that Prussia was fighting for its very survival as a sovereign state. However, Austria and Russia weren't exactly having a great time of it either, despite their overwhelming numerical superiority and their apparently overwhelming successes in turn, they were suffering from nearly crippling financial problems by the end of 1760, the result of constant war for nearly four years, as the historian Franz Szabo explains, when he writes, Though both Austria and Russia could finally agree on a joint plan of operations for the next year of 1761, they had huge financial difficulties in carrying them out. A peace treaty for Austria would have to include Silesia if they wanted to gain satisfaction from the war. Maria Theresa would expect nothing less after the upstart Frederick stole that province in 1740. Russia wanted to be able to claim greater influence in Europe, as well as to achieve the chance to impose its will on Prussia in some way. Both Austria and Russia had beaten Prussia many times by this stage, but still neither felt satisfied that they had achieved all their war aims. So they planned the new campaign season of 1761 with a dicey financial record, but with no less of a desire to fight and defeat Prussia again. Russia's situation was perhaps more of a problem to maintain than Austria's, since Russia was fighting far from home, 
and relying on long, vulnerable supply lines, many of which stretched through a nervous Poland. Russia's empress, though, the Tsarina Elizabeth, was determined to carry on with the war despite Russia's problems both at home and in the war. Zabo notes, She remained determined that the war should continue whatever it took, even offering to sell half her dresses and diamonds for the war effort. Not as frivolous a comment as it might seem in light of the fact that she owned nearly 15,000 dresses. Comments about the size of her wardrobe aside, the Empress of Russia's determination and grit was palpable. Frederick was not facing the Russian Empire which would later roll over in the face of a harsh war. The Russians, under their Empress, were clearly in it for the long haul, so long as the Tsarina was at its helm. France, on the other hand, began the campaign season of 1761 badly, continuing its tradition of losing against the Hanoverians and British. This time it lost the Battle of Langensalza on the 10th of February to a combined Prussian-Hanoverian army. This demonstrated Frederick's commitment to aiding Hanover, as per the terms of his treaty with Britain, but Frederick also recognised that the last thing he needed was the French invading Prussia from the west. But the greatest victory for Hanover was to come at the Battle of Willinghausen on the 15th of July 1761. This was an embarrassing defeat for France, as it had sent 92,000 men to fight a combined allied Prussian, British and Hanoverian army of just 60,000. The defeat was not catastrophic, as the French only lost 5,000 men though. News of the French loss did have the result of improving Frederick's morale greatly, and it resulted in euphoric celebrations in Britain where it seemed like the victories just could not and would not stop. The French army was then split into two and became less effective. It would never effectively threaten Hanover so directly again. Then France lost the Battle of Pondicherry in summer of 1761 in the Indian theatre of the war, which served only to cement British power there. Prussia, by this point, was still in a crisis, as they lost yet more battles to the invading Austro-Russians. In August 1761, the Russians besieged the Prussians' only remaining Baltic port at Kahlberg. At the same time, the Austrians were moving with more purpose in Silesia, capturing the town of Schweidnitz in the summer of that year. Frederick was running out of options. His country was believed by Britain to be on the brink of collapse, and it was rumoured that both Austria and Russia and even Poland were making plans to partition Prussia completely once it had surrendered. Prussia was now being pushed by Britain to sue for peace, or Britain threatened to stop paying its side of the treaty. Frederick wanted peace, preferably with Russia, and Russia only, since despite everything, Frederick believed that he could take Austria on when it was by itself, and force it to the bargaining table. The question was how to remove Russia from the war, Prussia was seeing its reserves of manpower run dry, the country was being bled white by the constant pitched battles. Then there was the question of Sweden in the north. Sweden had been very quiet all this time since its victories over Prussia and its Pomeranian territories. Frederick by the end of 1761 was at the end of his rope, and he wrote in his diary on the 10th of December that The Austrians are masters of Schweidnitz and the mountains. The Russians are behind the length of the Varth from Kahlberg to Posen. My every bale of hay, sack of money or batch of recruits is only arriving by courtesy of the enemy or from his negligence. 
Austrians controlling the hills in Saxony, the Imperials the same in Thuringia. All our fortresses are vulnerable in Silesia, in Pomerania, Stetting, Kirsten, even Berlin, and are at the mercy of the Russians. At this low point in Frederick's life, with few options and even fewer allies, the second miracle of the House of Brandenburg occurred. The Russian Empress, Tsarina Elizabeth, died on the 4th of January 1762. Her death opened the door for a nearly ruined Prussia, and for Frederick, as her successor was Tsar Peter III, who happened to be a renowned admirer of Frederick the Great and of most things Prussian. Upon his succession to the throne, Peter almost immediately withdrew his troops from Prussia and sought to end the war with Frederick, who of course jumped at the chance to sign a separate peace with Russia, which he did in the Treaty of St. Petersburg of March 1762. It seemed incredible. Just like that, the war now seemed winnable for Frederick, after all that had happened. While he had been making friendly with Peter, to the Austrians' disgust, another power got in contact with Frederick, Sweden. By March 1762, Sweden was feeling the effects of war too, and had little to show for its involvement in such a lengthy conflict. Sweden agreed for peace, and Tsar Peter agreed to mediate that peace, which he did, resulting in a treaty between Prussia and Sweden that came into force on the 18th of June, 1762. With Sweden and Russia gone, Frederick's only enemy within striking distance was now Austria. However, Frederick would have been made aware that there were some other new developments, developments involving states which, until now, had been neutral in the war. Coming a bit late to the party, Spain and Portugal entered the war nonetheless. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In January of 1762, with Spain on the French side and Portugal on the British. In reality, their respective entrance into the war made little real difference to its outcome by this stage. Portugal entered the war because it wanted to support Britain and reinforce the security of its South American possessions. Spain entered into the war to support France against Britain's allies in Hanover and in the Americas. Despite their intervention, this was a closing phase of the war, and one which was already becoming defined by Prussia, not the Iberians. Once it freed itself from the eastern and northern obligations, i.e. of Russia and Sweden, Prussia could move all of its forces down south to fight Austria alone. Austria's beleaguered forces crumbled under the weight of such an onslaught. It lost the Battle of Brückersdorf in July 1762, and then lost the crucial Battle of Freiburg on the 29th of October. 
Frederick drove the Austrians out of Silesia with this last victory, and Maria Theresa would have been shaking her head in rage, disgust and disbelief. Frederick, somehow after everything that had happened to Prussia, was now sitting pretty, and rumour had it that his Austrian foe now wanted to talk terms, as did France. Before I really looked into this war, I had thought that the Seven Years' War involved only Britain and France. I thought historians called it a world war because their respective colonies fought one another. I had no idea that practically all of Europe was at war with one another. I focused mainly on the war in Europe because I believe it was a far more important theatre than America or India, and here's why. In America and India, Britain and France fought for influence, for trading monopolies and to expand their existing colonies on those continents. In Europe, nations like Prussia and Hanover were fighting for their very existence. So, survival or more money was the question I asked myself when planning this podcast originally, and from that I knew that Europe was a more important theatre. Let that be a disclaimer for you then, as I now force myself to begrudgingly cover the war in America in just a few hot minutes. French victories in the American campaign never really forced Britain out of America like Britain's victories did. This was because of France's strategy. Remember, it only really cared about the European side of the war, since Britain would own it if it tried sailing around there, and French officials believed that they could take back the land they lost in America if they could only defeat their enemies soundly enough in Europe to force them to the negotiating table. But this strategy was the downfall of France, because it meant that they never paid enough attention to America to make the French position there viable, while Britain treated America with almost more importance than Europe, at least until 1759. This theatre of the war is often called the French and Indian War, sometimes people just call the Seven Years' War that, because it refers to Britain's main enemies in the region, the French and their loyalist Native American allies. The war was fought primarily along the frontiers, separating New France from the British colonies, from Virginia to Nova Scotia, and began with a dispute over the confluence of the Alihini and Monongahela rivers, apologies about pronunciation, which is the site, by the way, of present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for those not familiar with American geography, like myself. The dispute erupted into violence in the Battle of Humanville Glen in May 1754, during which Virginia militiamen under the command of George Washington ambushed a French patrol. Yes, that George Washington. British operations in 1755-57 in the frontier areas of Pennsylvania and New York all failed due to a combination of poor management, internal divisions and effective French and Indian offence. The British campaigning was so bad that the British government at home collapsed as a result, bringing in the new Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder to replace the resident Prime Minister the Duke of Newcastle. Remember, in a little while, these two guys form a coalition government, after Frederick tells them that war is more important than one-upping your political adversary. Anyway, Pitt largely turned the situation in America around thanks to his huge increase in soldiers that he sent to America. The campaign then culminated in November 1760 when British troops breezed past the smaller numbers of French soldiers and laid siege to Montreal, the capital of what was then New France, but what is now basically Canada. When that fell, it was pretty much a campaign of less importance for both sides, and they focused on the European theatre of war with greater intensity. 
The French did this because they were trying to find something they could capture in Europe and then swap back for New France and the negotiating table, hence their apparent love of Hanoverian lands at this stage. While Britain did this because they now knew they had to protect Hanover to prevent France from achieving this and acquiring any lands that would be used as bargaining chips against her, hence Hanover. As we saw, though, while the campaign in Europe initially went well for France, it eventually deteriorated as the French lost a stream of battles to the combined armies of Hanover, Britain and Prussia. Such losses played havoc with the French psyche too, as the morale of its citizens was beginning to wane. France's treasury was being drained just like everyone else's, except France has no major gains in the war to show for it. Its people began clamouring for peace with Britain as a result. Peace was viewed as favourable by the French King Louis XV too, especially when in September 1762, France lost the Battle of Signal Hill in Newfoundland to Britain. News of this loss to an already weary French population only increased the desire for a peace treaty with their enemies. By 1762, it should be noted that Austria, Britain, France, Prussia, Russia, and even Sweden were all suffering from the lack of funds, of manpower, and of the will of the people to fight on. At the end of 1762, there was a worldwide recognition that the war could not continue much longer, and that perhaps the Dutch had been right for remaining neutral. So plans for making peace gained ground as 1762 became 63. It's important to remember what the aims of each state going into the war back in 1756 had been, since it becomes clear now that making peace, despite its clear necessity, was more painful for some than it was for others. The biggest example of this is Austria, where Maria Theresa had led her country into a war backed up by allies, with arguably the major aim being to take back Silesia from Prussia. Kicking Prussia around for the better part of three years, only to lose in the end what it had fought so hard for, and only because, as many Austrian statesmen believed at the time, its allies had abandoned her, was a very hard pill for Vienna to swallow. Prussia, on the other hand, was somehow riding high, because Frederick's state somehow endured the country's most disastrous years of their existence. But Frederick may have been bitter too, because the resulting peace treaties basically left things as they were in Europe in 1756 before the war had begun. So Frederick didn't gain anything, but he didn't lose anything either. Britain's gains from the peace were perhaps the most clear, because the Treaty of Paris maintained the British gains in the American theatre of the war, and advanced its position immensely in India, with the result that it was clear to any neutral observer, to the extent that Britain was now the master of both India and North America. The peace treaty which ended the conflict between France, Britain, Spain and Portugal was the Treaty of Paris, signed on the 10th of February 1763. The other peace treaty, signed on the 15th of February, was the Treaty of Hubertsburg, and it ended the war between Prussia, Austria and Saxony. Europe was now at peace after that weird-sounding treaty, and both camps in Europe began switching their alliances back around. Prussia, for example, signed a treaty of friendship with Russia in 1765, perhaps out of Frederick the Great's ambition to never be so surrounded again. Once the Seven Years' War ended, though, very little seemed to change in the world, except for two major changes that become clear to me. First, Britain was no longer sharing India or America with France, it now had a clear monopoly on both, such possessions around the world only increased Britain's prestige. 
Second, Prussia's situation in Europe, while not changed much geographically, had changed politically. The experience and sight of Prussia surviving after such grave military experiences established the fact that Prussia was now a definite military power in Europe. It would remain centred in such a way so that any future European wars would either involve it or cautiously observe the power of Berlin. This centering in Europe's military consciousness never would have been possible without the exploits of Frederick II, that is, the Great of Prussia. The Seven Years' War was a watershed moment in European history in a lot of ways. It was the last purely European war before the outbreak of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars from 1789. In line with this, you may be interested to note that the year in which the French and Indian War started, 1754, was also the year in which the unfortunate Louis XVI was born. Twenty years later, and ten years after the peace treaties were all signed in 1774, Louis XVI would be crowned King of France. He would meet his end under a guillotine amidst the most chaotic and dramatic revolution the world had yet seen. These were also the years in which a certain George Washington attached himself to a movement which would erupt in the 13 colonies only 10 years after Britain had fought so hard to expand and confirm their purely British status. I'm talking, of course, about the War of Independence. New ideas were emerging in Europe now that had had the time to breathe after so many years of war. Ideas of sovereignty and perhaps even limited legislative independence in the 13 colonies. Ideas of German identity and statehood in Prussia and of liberty, equality and fraternity in France. Needless to say, even though the peace treaties had been signed in 1763, Europe hadn't seen the last of war just yet. The first thing I thought of when I'd finished researching the conflict was, he doesn't seem all that great. I'm referring to Frederick, of course, and if you don't mind, I'd like to end this episode by giving you my opinion on the man. Perhaps in the Seven Years' War it would have been cooler if Frederick had pulled a Napoleon and simply beaten everyone despite the odds, but while he wasn't invincible and he did make mistakes, there are some other things he did that weren't the great title he's been saddled with. First, he was Prussia's monarch, their absolute monarch, at a very crucial time. Frederick would remain on the throne until 1786, which meant that he had a 40-year reign that saw him steer his country through numerous wars and come out on top. Well, of course he did, I hear you say. That was his job. Well, that's true. It shouldn't be forgotten just how impressive a feat Prussia's survival was in the Seven Years' War. You could, of course, put it all down to chance, and you could make a strong argument in that regard without much effort. His enemies chose not to push the attack at crucial moments. The Russian Empress died, and her successor was more of a Prussian fanboy than I am, among other events. And although I would agree that these events were crucial to Prussia's survival, I feel Frederick himself should share some of the recognition too. Frederick the Great is and was great because he led his armies personally through some of their worst defeats and most important victories. He could never be described as infallible, I'm not trying to say that, but he was a man of strong character who ensured that Prussia kept fighting no matter how hopeless the situation and who held his country together even while his enemies had surrounded him and were implementing their plans to destroy him. 
Only a great man could withstand something like that. The legacy he would leave behind, that of holding on, of fighting bravely and of sacrifice, is one that lasted hundreds of years in the German psyche. Its most infamous and unfortunate reference came in April 1945, when a certain German dictator was clinging to a last hope for victory, even while his nation crumbled around him. Hugh Trevor Roper, in his book The Last Days of Hitler, wrote that Adolf Hitler was rumoured to have read the biography of Frederick the Great by Thomas Carlyle in the dying days of the Reich. The German finance minister at the time recorded in his diary that Josef Goebbels read to Hitler the chapter about how the great king himself, Frederick the Great, no longer saw any way out of his difficulties, no longer had any plan, how all his generals and ministers were convinced that his downfall was at hand, how the enemy was already counting Prussia as destroyed, how the future hung dark before him, and in his last letter to his minister, he gave himself one last respite. If there was no change by the 10th of February, he would give it up and take poison. Brave king, says Carlyle, wait ye a little while, and the days of your good fortune stands behind the clouds, and soon will rise upon you. On the 4th of January, the Tsarina died. The miracle of the House of Brandenburg had again come to pass. Adolf Hitler, as he grasped desperately for a miracle to save his crumbling regime, took solace in Frederick's struggle, as the German finance minister also wrote that Goebbels then said to him, For reasons of historical necessity and justice, a change of fortune was inevitable, just like the miracle of the House of Brandenburg in the Seven Years' War. One of the general staff officers had somewhat sceptically and ironically asked, What, Tsarina will die this time? That, Goebbels had replied, he could not say, but fate still held many possibilities in her hand. Then he had driven home and had heard the news of Roosevelt's death. Immediately, he had telephoned to Goering and said, The Tsarina is dead! Goering had told him that this made a great impression on the soldiers. Now they saw another chance. Thankfully, however, while this is an interesting side note, Roosevelt's successor was nothing like Elizabeth's successor. Truman continued the war. He did not withdraw his troops from Germany as Tsar Peter III had done before. The miracle of the House of Brandenburg may have saved Frederick the Great's career, but thankfully it never came for Hitler. The Seven Years' War was, as you'll hopefully now agree, quite a fascinating conflict in history. As far as I'm concerned, wars in the 18th century possess a certain level of intrigue and epic drama that can't be found elsewhere, except perhaps in the 17th century, which we all know quite well. The 18th century has a lot going for it, so you may be interested to know... I'll be staying in this century for the next episode. Without giving too much away, although in fairness, if you know what my back catalogue is like in any kind of way, you'll know what's coming next. That's going to do it for this episode. So please remember, be fit. And thanks for all the support so far for this remastered special, guys. I'll talk to you again soon, my history friends. Thanks and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.